Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is sponsored by the Communications Network and the Lumina Foundation. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena just a little bit more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at Let's Hear Cast.com. Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And if you like the show, please, please, please rate us on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find us. So let's get on to the show. Welcome to Let's Hear It. We're very excited to have you here. And and Kirk, I have to say that I'm uh, you, you did this interview with David Roberts of Vox. And yes. I have to say that I'm uh, I'm angry with you. Oh, no, I can't believe it because I'm so proud of myself. No, I can't wait to hear. I'm very, very, very angry because uh, you are a, a much better interviewer than I am. Oh, no. Wow. <laughs> hey, David Roberts. How about that? David Roberts. What a great um, and generous guest on Let's Hear It. I mean, it was one of those things where I, I, I kind of confessed on the interview that um, I'm just a fan. I can't even I can't even hide it. I think he's an excellent writer. I think he's thoughtful. I think he's funny and <laughs> certainly has a point of view and was happy to share it. And I was just honest. I said, hey, look, I know you write about energy and climate change for Vox. I want to talk with you. I'd love to have you on the podcast. We'll talk about communications. We'll talk about foundations, nonprofits. But I just want to hear you go. And yeah. I think I I started a conversation. We hit play. We hit record. And I had a blast. It was so much fun talking to him. I thought he was great. I have to say that for a drooling fanboy, you <laughs> comported yourself with interviewing excellence and i was very impressed and i very much enjoyed the conversation so i think what we should do is just go to the tape let folks listen and then we can then we can uh, i don't know what we can do i could shower you with praise but it was a, a wonderful conversation i really enjoyed it i laughed out loud a few times i'm uh, envious of your skills kirk so here here we go with david roberts of vox and welcome in for another edition of Let's Hear It. Uh, you've got Kirk Brown here, and I'm so pleased this week. In fact, I think we're proving that there's true altruism that exists in the world because I'm joined by none other than the Mr. David Roberts, one of my favorite writers from Vox, of course, was at Chris before that, and um, was so gracious to say yes to chatting with us on Let's Hear It. So, David, thank you. Welcome in, and I'm so glad you're here with us today. Glad to be here, Kirk. So I confess this to you. This is my full 15 minutes of fame because this interview plus my Lou Reed autograph, that's about it for me. So <laughs> I'm going to try. I'm going to try I, not to be a total. I, I think I'm not sure those two things quite belong in the same category. But. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll try, I'll try not to be too much of a too much of an unrepentant fan. We've got a lot of ground to cover today. But maybe could we start just background wise? Tell me a little bit about, you know, the journey from from Gris to Vox, just kind of what brings you into this field. In particular, I'm kind of interested in just hearing more about your experience as a writer and a journalist. I, I think you've got a point of view, but I also think it's really fact based. So I'd just be curious how you balance that th those parts of your work, too. Sure. My personal story is extremely uh, aesthetically unsatisfying. <laughs> it's not very <laughs> It's not very exciting. I went to grad school for philosophy for a while. I was a philosophy grad student for a while, up to ABD, and then bailed out of that. Of course. Great. I got I got a close-up view of academia and, and lunged for the ripcord. <laughs> and then I moved to Seattle. I was just bouncing around doing temp jobs. I worked Amazon customer service for a while, like just completely aimless. Were you ever in a grunge band? Did you ever try the grunge <laughs> band thing or, or no? No. I missed, I got here at 2000, so I missed all the waves of money and like <laughs> cultural relevance. Somehow I slipstreamed all in between them and, and gained neither. So uh, I relate. I fully relate. <laughs> so I was unemployed in 2003, unemployed with my first firstborn child uh, uh, at home. Yeah, it was a real, a real highlight, a real peak. So I saw this advertisement on Craigslist for a editorial assistant at a small web publication called Grist. 
And at the time, I had no experience in journalism, no experience in environmentalism. Well, and you're and you're at the full on edge of the frontier there. You're on Craigslist getting looking at job postings. I, you're you're tracking down grist. The Man. very first time I ever went to Craigslist. The very first time I ever knew it existed. I had a friend tip me off to its existence. And the first time I ever visited, I found the job that would completely, completely change my life. So I went into Grist not having any background in any of this stuff or really like any interest or like history. I was the fifth person there, the fifth employee. And I just wormed my way slowly over time into full-time writing and basically taught myself everything that I know now. It was great. I had, I had something that other, I think very, very few writers get these days, which is a stable job that was relatively obscure in which I could just figure out my style, learn things, make mistakes without, you know, a big spotlight on me over time. I had basically no guidance. Like when there's only five employees, there's not, people don't have a lot of time to manage you, you know? So, and I just sort of found a style that felt right to me. You know, I had no training in any, in journalism at all. So I just wrote the way that felt right to me, which is imagine I'm in a bar with a good friend who is smart, like a smart, well-educated, smart person who just happens to not know much about this particular area and I'm just going to explain it to my friend in a bar. So, you know, if you read traditional objective journalism, it's just tends to be honestly so boring and it's just like not the way you would talk to a person if your goal was to get a person to understand something and why it mattered. You're just uh, you're not allowed to have any opinions, you're not allowed to do any real interpretation. It's supposed to be just be facts, but like that's not how people think. That's not how people absorb information. People want to know what does it mean? What's the significance of it? And I always try to include that in my writing. And I ended up coincidentally writing in the style. So, you know, around 2000, whatever it was, 13, 14, they just asked me to come over and I did. And I've been there ever since. Did you start with a sensibility about having a point of view or did that point of view evolve as you dug into the issues? I mean, the fact that you came from kind of no, in, in quotes, you know, background in this stuff, was there a process where you kind of got convinced in your own right? Or how did that, how did that process of developing your point of view evolve for you? When I say point of view, part of that is a particular sort of perspective and opinion about the issues. But part of it is also having a personality. I always made jokes. You know, I always put like funny captions on my pictures. I used to include pictures of cute animals in my posts just for the hell of it. Just to like, I all I, all I wanted was to be interesting. I wanted people to read it and be interested. And, and like environmental journalism, at least especially back then, was just very boring in my experience, especially climate journalism, just extremely boring. So I just wanted to be interesting. And so like in terms of developing a point of view on stuff, that just was a matter of reading and reading and reading and talking to people and watching other people make mistakes. I came to that over, over time, you know, I sort of entered as a progressive, obviously, generally speaking, and I never tried to hide that. But, but as you say, the way I view it is, this is always, I, I sort of came to this way of thinking about it in, in the mid-2000s and have never really let it go, which is, it's fine to have your jokes, have your personality, have your funny asides, have your opinions, but you have to buy those with research and facts. Like, you have to know what you're talking about. Like, that's how you earn the right to be a smartass. You earn that by knowing your shit. The, the two are linked. If you just have the one without the other, then you're just another blogger. And it's fun to see you put this into practice. You know, our, our um, podcast here is about communications, you know, from the social change foundation, nonprofit perspective. And we've been talking to folks that we just keep using the phrase master's class. Like we keep talking to folks that are just providing these master's classes and how to do this. And I look at you on Twitter and I see at DR Vox, which I want to call Dr. Vox. I don't know if that's fair. Everyone, everyone mm -hmm. does. Yeah. Everyone I want to call it Dr. To. Vox. And I see you doing this with your Twitter feed. You know, it's it's funny. It's informative. You're linking to articles. You're writing. Um, you're doing long threads where you're breaking stuff down. I see your stuff repurposed often in my travels because I travel in kind of this energy and climate space. And so it's on Facebook pages. You know, it moves around. Um, it's really moving the needle. And 
I'd be curious just on the social media dimensions and Twitter in particular, and, and I see you even, even uh, recently you're asking for energy Twitter. You're asking for some feedback from energy Twitter about what, you know, climate energy policy could look like in a second term under uh, the current administration. But how much of your life is spent on social media? How, how important is social media to your work? <laughs> <laughs> There's like the, the answer that makes me look good and the true answer. The fact of the matter is way too much. Twitter is horrible in all the ways that people say it is horrible, <laughs> but it's also, I have gotten a lot out of it. The stuff I write for the site, that's my, that's what I view as my real work. Like that's my, whatever, what's going to last beyond me or what I sort of like will stand behind. I have been able to get much more attention for that through Twitter. Like I've been able to connect with a lot more people through Twitter than I ever would have just writing away on the site, uh, you know, on, on my own, even people who are interested, like I've been able to connect with a lot of my heroes. It's been an, it's been a doorway for me into a, into a much larger audience, a much more interesting audience. And, uh, and I get climate and energy professionals now following me that it's, that it's a genuinely helpful research tool for me now. Like I get good ideas from it. I get tips. I find sources. Like I can just put up a thread like, Hey, what's up with X? You know, like what's up with hydrogen? And I'll just get like bombarded with great, you know, great thoughts and great sources. So, so for all the, you know, sort of corrosive effects it has on everything else, <laughs> there are good, there are good aspects up to it. And I figure like I, and I kind of think I figured out a good a way of managing it so that it is mostly to my benefit let's say well this is helpful because you know uh, my colleague eric brian who i do this podcast with has been giving me a hard time recently because i've been dipping into the disinformation world you know at some recent interviews and i'm just very interested in this question related to just the social landscape in general though i'm um, one of our uh, renee duresta who's on just recently you know pointed out that it's so far, it's so much more complicated than this platform or that platform. There's so many things going on at once that it's a real ecosystem that, and almost that narrative is the right way to think about that, that ecosystem. But I keep asking people how much of what we're seeing on social is, is artificial versus organic. And it sounds like from your experience, you think there's a, there's a, there's a fair degree of organic conversation you can have. And in fact, it's on balance helpful. And I have to say, I almost love hearing that because it's so, um, it's so easy to be in that rabbit hole that's on the other side of that, which is that there's this weird, massive global propaganda machine that's grown up around us and it's slowly yeah. and surely ripping our society apart. And we're almost unaware that it's happening, even though it's happening in front of us all day, every day. Where do you land on that? What's how, how would you could you could you parse this for us in about a minute? I mean, could you well, tease that apart? The, I mean, I've written, you know, quite a bit about what I call America's epistemic crisis, which is just, which, which is, you know, obviously like multi causal. There's a lot, there's a lot going on, uh, uh, uh behind and around it, everything from, uh, you know, the loss of local newspapers to the rise of social media and everything. But basically, if you want the simplest possible explanation of what's happened, it's that America has allowed a racist authoritarian movement to steadily grow and arm itself, you know, sort of gird itself with the trappings of a real legitimate movement, you know, sort of quote unquote think tanks, quote unquote media, quote, the instant sort of these weird mirror image institutions that it has made for itself. Everyone just sat back and let that happen. You know, like starting with the starting with the founding of Fox in like 1994 or whatever, everyone just said, okay, you can come and call right-wing propaganda news. That's okay. <laughs> like no, no one stopped them. And so it just rolled downhill from there. Famously, the right wing in the U.S. is this kind of alliance between the money, you know, sort of the money people, the oligarchs, the rich people who want low taxes and low regulation and, and tax breaks and the kind of populist racist base has always been the alliance. And I think the, the, the money people started the media machine in order to keep the base constantly riled up. And fighting for the oligarchs, basically. Alex Perrine, the great writer, had a great piece about this. But basically, it grew out of their control, right? They're like the dog who caught the car, like the 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 machine of of constant umbrage and outrage and resentment fueled itself, and and 
escaped the control of its masters. And what's more, there used to be some division, I think, between kind of the elites of the party who viewed this kind of silliness and propaganda and conspiracy theory theories as a tool, right? They had some distance from it. But what happened is the longer this kind of machine has been around, this right-wing media now is like a full ecosystem, the longer it's been around, now you have a generation of people on the right who grew up inside it and don't have that distance from it and don't realize it's all a joke. And so like they've taken their... They're high on their own supply now. There's no one in charge with any intellectual or emotional distance from the insanity. So the insanity has kind of taken over now and, and, and I think is like operating on its own logic. I don't think anybody's in charge anymore. That's kind of one of my recent tweet threads was about like if you look at their political behavior during the last few months, like there's just no rational – explanation for it. There's not even a self-interested explanation for it. It's just, this is the animal they created and the animal does what the animal does and no one's in charge and no one can stop it. And it's just like going to drag us all down. I, it, it almost seems too, too big and out of control for anyone to get a handle on anymore, which really makes you wonder like where it all ends up. Well, let's take a break with that because you've launched us. Uh, you're a pro, David Roberts. You've launched us to <laughs> a very poignant set of conversations that I'd love to have, in particular as it relates to foundations, nonprofit, and then climate communications and energy policy in particular. So let's take a break, and then we'll be back with David Roberts from Vox on Let's Hear It. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is sponsored by the Communications Network, which connects, gathers, and informs the field of leaders working in communications for good. Because foundations and nonprofits that communicate well are stronger, smarter, and vastly more effective. You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com or on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. And we're back with David Roberts. And, and, and David, just as we were at break, you were bringing us through, I think, a very plausible and also utterly terrifying assessment. <laughs> um, I, I and, and I also appreciate how you gently pulled me out of my conspiracy theory uh, leanings and, and brought us to somehow a higher ground that's lower than even where I was at. So so let me test you on this. This is, again, I'm going to bring you back to the conspiracy theory mode, but I'm, I'm encourage you to come come bring us out of it. So did, was was climate gate in your field of view when you were writing at Grist and Vox, the notion that- Oh, yeah. Was, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So when the emails were being leaked in the in during the Clinton election, you know, I was around during the climate gator and I just I just saw the parallels. And so here here's my theory that uh, energy policy and climate policy and in particular oil politics is actually at the root of all of this, that the that the reason that you need to mess with elections and progress um, in the United States and then ultimately other Western democracies is that you're trying to slow and just derail this progression away from oil onto other forms of, um, of, of fuel, basically. And you can wrap a bow around everything that we're seeing and all of its complexity, all of its, even, even the, the destructive elements you're describing. What I, what I kind of think is that there might be at this point a self-sustaining echo chamber of hate and destruct and just destructiveness that's sort of feeding all this. But I still feel that there are key inputs that are uh, largely invisible to us trying to move this along. So that's my conspiracy theory, that, that, that you can actually look at all this from the lens of, of global energy and climate politics and see that this is, this is a, a kind of a massive end game playing out. Tell me I'm wrong, because you're smarter than I am, and I, and I, and I respect uh, your work. I, I, I think you're wrong. Please. <laughs> this is the conclusion I've come to from watching politics closely for a, a long time is two things. One is the explanation for things happening is almost always Nobody knows what the hell's going on. <laughs> yeah. Nobody's in charge. Everyone's incompetent. Everyone's just acting on their own immediate short-term interests. The result is an emergent phenomenon, right, that is not some cabal pulling the strings. Because people are idiots. The closer you look at, like, the competence of people in charge in various areas, whether it's whether it's corporations, whether it's government, you just, like, the closer you look, the more you think, holy shit, I can't believe that this whole thing is holding together. We're, I can't believe we're trundling along and not just coming apart. So just generally, I think, I, I definitely think that oil politics and fossil fuel politics are an element of this. 
But I just think like if I were say some oil oligarch and I, and I was making sort of master plans for how to manipulate society and I wanted to delay the decline of fossil fuels as long as possible, denying the existence of climate change right up to the point where your whole party becomes like a joke around the <laughs> entire world. That's not the smart way to do it. The smart way to do it was always what they're moving into now, which is we acknowledge it's a problem, but there's lots of other problems and this solution would cost too much. And instead let's try this slow, like, you know, just like co-opt. That's always the smart play is to co-opt it, not just to fight it full on. Like you're just gonna, you're gonna lose that fight and what you're and, and what they're ensuring now is because Republicans have been so intransigent, have have moved so little, ha, have been so unwilling to say any even mildly sane things, they are doing on climate change the same thing they did on health care. This is my analogy is back when Obama and the Democrats were trying to put together a health care plan, they tried and tried and tried to compromise with Republicans. They offered Republicans so much. Republicans could have co-opted that effort and radically weakened the resulting health care bill. But instead, their just utter opposition galvanized the Democrats into total unity and they passed this sweeping reform, right? And that's what's going to happen on climate too. Like if they don't give any at all, if they don't co-opt, what's going to happen is what's now happening, which is the entire left side of the spectrum coming into basic alignment around a very radical plan. So there's going to be this like bounce back, right? It's going to, we're going to, we're going to get policies that are way more radical than we would have gotten if oil companies had just, you know, sort of slithered in earlier on <laughs> and, like, and like taken... <laughs> been on all the councils and everything, you know yeah, what I mean? So like, yeah. th this is what I mean about the animal getting out of the control of its, of its creator is like, Republicans are not serving their own interests doing that, behaving the way they're behaving anymore. They're not serving the fossil fuel billionaires very well. Like all these, all these interests are supposed to be serving. They are too radical. Like you see this with like right now, Trump's trying to roll back methane, uh, emission rules. The big oil companies don't even want him to do that. Like this is the, several, several of the moves Trump has made are beyond what these oligarchs in the Republican Party want. Like they don't. Like it's more radical than they want, and it's all culture war. It's become all culture war politics, and Republicans are going to lose. The culture war. I don't know about the climate fight. I don't know about economics, policy, whatever. But on the culture war, they are going to lose. They are destined to lose that fight. And so if they put all their eggs in that basket and just like dig in on that front, they're just ensuring their long term loss. So that's why I don't think it's a conspiracy, because whoever is running this conspiracy is just doing a terrible job. If they're running it horribly. Yeah. Unless the unless the, the idea is to just eradicate the notion of independent governance. But you're right. So, so I don't get my classic X-Files smoking fan, smoking man in the corner, which somehow that would be so reassuring if Jeff, if Jeff thought that was the case. Yeah. This is the other thing I meant to say is for some reason, people take more comfort yeah. in the idea that there's a cabal in charge than they do <laughs> at the idea that no one's in charge. That's for right. some reason, that's way more terrifying to people. That's and right. It's way more accurate. Nope. That's right. It's, it's more plausible. You can even, we talk a lot about narrative and story on this podcast and it's, it's, it's an easier story to tell yourself than, yeah. than the horrifying reality of what's going on. So that said, and I, you know, I promised I wouldn't take the rest of your day though. I easily could. I mean, this is such a good set of conversations and your perspectives are so helpful. What do we do about all this? In particular, you know, foundations, nonprofits, those are the folks that listen in and, and we're really targeting with these conversations here. Um, you know, I, I saw what am I? you just have all these great tweets. And on August 14th, you're tweeting, uh, you know, I can't think any notion that has been more harmful to the climate movement than the assumption that the key to progress is changing minds. And, um, yes. and I just, I, I couldn't agree more. I think it, in, 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 there's, there's a multiple PhD dissertations we could write just around that one tweet. So again, <laughs> well done, well done, Dr. Vox. But, um, but you know, what would you say to the foundations and nonprofits that you see trying to make strides in this space? Um, you know, how do we turn this story around? And I'd even be curious, you know, back in the day, there was a notion of pitching, you know, you were trying to put really pervasive stuff in, 
front of journalists to try to, you know, hopefully get traction on different, right? And, and now you're on Twitter saying, hey, give me some ideas. So, so, so how well are people even doing putting the right content in front of journalists like you so that this narrative can grow of, of what, what's better, what's the alternative? Do you have thoughts about any of that? Well, yeah. I mean, there are, are people, institutions that are good at it and bad at it, just as a general matter. And this is a point I, I definitely wanted to make when we talked, because I know you were going to bring up uh, nonprofits and, and foundations and such. I would say that it is a general truth on the left, especially these days when the left has become kind of so professionalized, you know, it's just very much like an educated white upper middle class, you know, sort of faction of the left that's kind of most vocal, like those kind of people come out of words and ideas. They love words and ideas. They arrived in politics through words and ideas. They love talking and persuading and arguing. They love reading. Like they are very, very tied up and emotionally invested in the idea that ideas carry the day and that persuasion is the key to progress. That's why you see the climate movement having basically wasted several decades in this obsessive quest to figure out what is the exact right message to convince a denier. Thousands of man hours, thousands upon uh, thousands, like PhDs, so many students. You've underestimated this. it by many times to say it's <laughs> thousands, but Who fair knows? enough. Yeah. Who yeah. knows? And it yeah. was and it was to a first approximation all wasted time. It's just not how people think. It's not how people change their minds. And it's not how people make political decisions. And it's not how politics works. The, what the left lacks is an appreciation and a hunger for power. It's just about power. If you want to change things on climate policy, you gain power. And how things generally work is you scrabble and scrabble and fight and gain a little power and make a little change. And then people's minds change. People's minds change based on changes on the ground in social structures, in economic structures. People change their mind when like, it's clear that the world is changing. Political change isn't step one, change minds. Step two, implement <laughs> change, right? It's power. It's all yeah. about power. Yeah. And so from the beginning, philanthropies and left groups took this, this should be a bipartisan issue. And, you know, this isn't about this isn't about red or blue. It's about green, you know, like everyone loves nature, all this just utterly self-deluding nonsense. What's at stake here is in a dirty fossil fueled society, there are interests who benefit <laughs> from that society. And you, you're not going to persuade them to give up their power. That's just not how power works. You're going to take it. So from the very beginning, at least like 80% of energy and time and research should have been devoted to how to make the climate movement politically powerful, how to gain power, how to gain, uh, you know, the sort of ascent of lawmakers, how to elect lawmakers that swear fealty. And in practice, and this is why they didn't do it and what horrifies them to hear even to this day, in practice, that's mainly going to mean trying to elect Democrats. No one wants it to be partisan, but it is. Like, as a descriptive matter, it is. You know, like, the, the fossil fuel types have, like everyone else, sorted themselves into one party. To a first approximation, it's the same if you want, whether you want better health care or, like, better poverty policy or better climate policy. You just got to get more Democrats elected and and to the kind of white boomers who run these foundations, that just grates against their instincts and their self-image, right? Because this is the thing, when, when you're sitting back and saying, oh, you have these silly partisans and these silly partisans and they're silly partisan squabbles, but I, of course, see the bigger picture, see how it's all, you know, it's all, it, it's very self-flattering Whereas the idea that, like, I'm going to crawl down in the trenches and just hack my way forward like everybody else who's fighting is very, like, unromantic for these people to think. But that's that's the work. Well, and it's, you know, we could that 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 is the launching off point for uh, the conference we should create, the ongoing series of podcasts we should create, because I also think it's in that <laughs> even our best intended well-meaning um hyper elite leaders of all of these entities um 
that notion you're describing of building power, I would say inherent in that, at least from my perspective, is a willingness to really engage with people that are not you, you know, and that's not just a, a, a gendered or a race, you know, consideration. That's about poverty. That's about, you know, looking at people all across the economic spectrum. In my, in my own perspective on that is that I think it's, it can be awfully hard for those climate true believer folks to really actually do that work in a really meaningful way. They'll, they'll do it in a performative way. Absolutely. Because you have to check those boxes, but, but how much of that work is really happening in the field? I'm, I'm less certain about Well, Let me say, because I keep just being Debbie Downer, let me sort of conclude with a positive, <laughs> something positive. Like so many problems and divisions in the U S this is largely generational. It is largely the kind of older affluent white boomer people who run these organizations that we're talking about, the younger generation gets it. The younger generation gets that this is about power. They get that it has to be intersectional. This is the whole, if you look at like the sunrise movement or all these youth movements, their whole thing is we need a vision for solving climate change that also addresses historical inequalities, it also addresses, you know, inequalities in who suffers from air pollution and who doesn't, who benefits from the economic growth of new industries, you know, just like a bigger, more um, uh, sort of holistic view that gives all these other interest groups and all these other factions a way to see themselves in it. So, like, that's that's happening at among young people on the left that's happening. There's a much like I talk to the people at Sunrise, the leadership at Sunrise, and it is like and I'm a, like an old cynical bastard, but I talk to these I talk to these kids and they are just so sharp. They're just so sharp. They don't take the old view of just like our only job is to get in the street and scream and and condemn every politician as a hopeless sellout. They get that there's like a push and a pull, an inside and an outside game, right? And there's like unity on the left and just like ways to peel people off the right. They just have a great, a much better understanding of politics, in my experience, than the, than the kind of older generation of environmental leaders. So it's just like every other problem <laughs> in America. If we can just hold together long enough, wait it right? out. If, if we can just keep the country from falling apart long enough, the, the new generation is going to take over and, and, and fix things. Pass the baton as quickly as possible. Well, this is awesome. You know, David, as I let you go, can I ask you one last question? I know we're a little sure. bit long. So, you know, foundations are part of our, our audience of listeners for this podcast too. And um, what role should foundations be playing in supporting work like yours specifically uh, should foundations be investing in journalism? Are they doing enough? Should be should they be doing more along those lines? Do you have a, do you have a point of view about that? I I don't think there's an answer to that that is specific to climate journalism. Like the you know the journalism in general is not not doing well, not doing well, and no one really. I mean that's in a whole other big podcast topic. But 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 I do think that the nonprofit model is one of the few that shows any real <laughs> promise, right? You're, like, you're sort of ProPublica's and you're, you know, Mother Jones and, and, and that kind of thing. So that's a that's an opportunity for philanthropic money. And like, this is just one of those many, many areas where you're like, why do we feel so helpless about this? If you look at the other side, right-wing billionaires are out like <laughs> just getting at it, doing it. <laughs> like, they're just out in the field, like buying up local newspapers, <laughs> buying up, you know, Not entire shy. media groups. Like right. they're just – they don't sit around twiddling their thumbs and like stroking their beards and wondering what to do. They just go like throw their money and power around. They're just so accustomed to having and using power. And the left has got to like, there's a lot of money on the left. It's just so wasted. It's so often wasted. Like there's a lot of money flying around. If, if we could just get our shit together, there's a lot of good things you could do for journalism. Uh, you know, with some concentrated steady funding, like this is, a, a critique that is so familiar at this point, it's practically cliche, but it's true nonetheless, like on the right for decades now, they've had patient funding. They've built institutions and let them grow and figure themselves out and basically created this entire ecosystem where if you're a young white kid in college and, and have vague feelings that like, oh my God, white guys can't get a break these days, you, you have a whole 
a whole world that is waiting to welcome you with open arms and give you money and teach you the right phrases and, and give you some theoretical backing for your instincts and just like all the way until you die. Like the wingnut welfare system will take you from like college through your deathbed and you never have to poke your head outside of it. But there's nothing even approaching that on the left. The left you know, foundations are always these like conditional grants with their ridiculous sort of metrics and, and report uh, too much reporting. And it's always a one-off project and there's just no patient institution building. So that's one of the things that I would say to, to left foundations. And that's true for, about journalism. It's true about climate. It's true about anything. It's just, we need like, where is the left federalist society where is the left like alec you know at the state at the state level lobbying for things like where is the left in creating and maintaining and deploying power as opposed to like message testing forever and ever and ever and ever just endless rounds of message testing it's so depressing yeah another framing assessment D yes, David. oh man this is just awesome i i have to let you go because you've got a life that you need to lead um and and i but i have to say david this is what a treat for me um let me say personally, just so thankful to you for all of your work, uh, thankful for Vox, for all that they do. And um, thank you for being willing to come in and talk with us. I think that uh, our, our folks are going to get a lot out of this. So I really appreciate uh, you and all the work you're doing. And, and we wish you nothing but the best as you continue this uh, work of writing in this space. Thank you so much, David. Thank you. It was fun. All right. So what uh, what steroid were you taking, Kirk? What... <laughs> I think you're on steroids. I think you're on. Did you get tested? Did you did you did you pee clear before you gave this interview? Because you were bringing it. That you had a great. I really really enjoyed that. Actually, I, I would love your take on this because I know you read people, you follow folks, but I just really have tremendous respect for Vox. I have tremendous respect for what David does, and you know we have respect for all the people that we have on the podcast. But I, <laughs> I was minding my. P's and Q's a little bit. I mean, I mean, it was really fun to talk to him. So, and and then of course his 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 style just invites you to take different directions. And um, what did you think about that little journey we took in that conversation? He 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 had a lot of things to say. I he, thought, he and and I thought they were did. excellent. He did well. First, I, I would just like to say to all those people out there who uh, are looking for work in the COVID. <laughs> miasma or whatever whatever you call it that his yeah. journey to being you know one of the better read climate journalists in america started by answering an ad on craigslist for an editorial assistant when he had no editorial assistant experience <laughs> And, and and not just Craigslist, the random what is that thing called Craigslist? I mean, I mean, right. he, he was he was like he pulled it, you know, he, he pulled it off his shoe or something. It's a wonderful job story about just go ahead and try it. The other thing that I was particularly impressed by, and I've always I I read him when he was a writer for Grist. I always found him to be entertaining and interesting, and I always learned something. And that that holy trinity of entertaining, interesting, and informative he has taken to the bank. But he said uh, something that's really true, which is that environmental journalism was boring. But the fact of the matter is that a lot of the writing that folks do is boring. And what he wanted to do was to have a conversation with his readers. And that uh, really, really, really spoke to me. And his willingness to have a point of view... I have to say, when I asked him about how much time he himself spends on social media, it was just so fun to hear his response and to be hear him say, well, you know, there's a there's an answer I could give you that would make me sound great. Then there's the truth, you know, um, <laughs> right. but then this is and I have to say, you know, one of the things one of my takeaways talking to David, I was thinking to myself after you know, actually a lot of the content of our discussion was just downright depressing. You know, when the, the perspectives he's bringing about some of the limitations of some of our advocacy work, the shift in um, what he, he said, he's written a lot about the epistemic, I think, or ep, ep, epistemology, basically, I think he was playing with, but just the crisis in America that's grown over time, 
that we've all kind of seen growing up on our watch. Um, it was just, you know, it's very sobering. That's a very sobering conversation. And yet at the same time, like so often has been the case doing this podcast, the fact that there is a David Roberts out there doing this work, engaging it the way he is being as frank as he's willing to be, I, I found incredibly, uh, uplifting and inspiring. And, and I, and I feel like so many of the themes that we've been playing with, with the podcast are just on display here between just the severity of the issues that people are confronting and the work that they're doing. And yet these personal stories about how they're approaching the work. And so often it seems like the stories come back to these very, um, plain starts this plain beginning. You know, I just want to get into something and start doing something. And then you look up years later and here's, you know, David Roberts, who's become this terrific voice. I mean, is that, is that how that felt to you? Cause it was just, it was really, really fun to hear his reflections on all of that. Well, um, okay. So on the one hand, he said that well, for one thing, he debunked some of your favorite <laughs> <laughs> conspiracy theory, disinformation, misinformation. I, I'm sure you have a aluminum foil hat somewhere in your house, Kirk. So he just turned on the shower cold, just turned it on cold and hard. It was awesome. So on the one hand, he said, no, Mr. Brown, it's not really how it works. It's just that these folks that that if there was some cabal in charge, then they would have done a much better job than they did. And I'm not quite sure. I don't know. Does that make you feel better or worse? Oh, such a good question. When he said that, you know, one of the things I've learned is that, you know, everyone's operating out of their kind of most narrow self-interest and nobody, nobody kind of sees the forest for the trees. It's, it's just, it's really not pre-planned. Um, I don't know is my, is, is the simple answer <laughs> to that question. I think you're going to feel bad uh, no matter what, Kirk. I think so. Right. <laughs> I but, think so, that's where you lean. Okay. But here's what I want to know. <laughs> Cause I was, I, as he went on this other piece, I really, I actually thought about, you know, some of the work in philanthropy that you've done and just the work at scale. When he said, look, we have to under that again, you had me at hello. When he said the people on the left, they love words and ideas and persuasion. Right. You know, we love our words, our ideas and persuasion. And he's like, and he said, you know, it just doesn't work that way. But he started talking about power and, and from his perspective, the need here is just to assemble power. And so, you know, that contrast between, look, there is, there is, um, no, nobody be behind the curtain, so to speak, but there is a mismatch in sensibility tactics and approach between the words, ideas, and persuasion, uh, camp versus the power building camp. I would say, I think if you buy that logic, which I think I do, and I, I can't wait to hear you reflect on it, that might actually make me feel more depressed than the fact that my <laughs> my desire to find aliens <laughs> controlling things is not being borne out by these thoughtful people we're having on the podcast. But what do you think about that? Because 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 you're right. Nobody, there may or may not be a bunch of people behind the scenes that are that are that are making this all go the way it's going to go. But what about that mismatch between power versus persuasion? Uh, that that I thought was very interesting and insightful. What he had to say there. Well, I mean, he said that we wasted decades trying to convince the deniers. Decades. And yeah. that, that's a little disappointing. He said that our people love words and ideas, which, oh, my goodness, do we ever. I love <laughs> words and I love ideas. It is also possible that I have never convinced anybody of anything ever. So yeah. if, <laughs> if, 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 if words and ideas are arts, art for art's sake, then I'm all for them. But I also understand that he's right, which is that with the, the, we, we, the left lacks, a, a, for lack of a better description, a killer instinct, a, this, this appreciation and hunger, hunger for power, which sounds so distasteful. It sounds so, you know, ugly. But I... I I think he is, he is, I can't remember my, it's been a while since I took a, my a poli sci class, but there, there are no shortage of uh, philosophers, maybe Lao Tzu or, or Machiavelli who understand <laughs> that power is power is power. And as we have this conversation, you and I, Kirk, uh, we, the, uh, the, the United States Senate 
is is having this its own conversation about power in in the, uh, yeah. the confirmation hearings for Supreme Court justice, and and that's clearly a a an understanding of power. But to, to get back to where does our our work go, and how do you communicate in the context of power? I mean, I don't know. What do you what do you think about that? Yeah, it's so challenging because particularly as it relates to climate, I've always thought of it that my problem with the power sensibility, which really could be right. I mean, David could just be calling it plain and calling it right. The challenge for me has always been really resisting thinking in terms of us versus them. And when I and when I think about power, it's difficult for me not to think of that in terms of us versus them and how do we eradicate them so we can support us. And and to me, the work on climate that I've been part of that's always felt most impactful, most authentic, and um, just most inspiring, he's right. It's not been in the persuasion business. And I do think that's a really interesting reflection. And in fact, I've been around many, many, many tables of uh, people who kind of worship at that altar of words, ideas, and persuasion. And, you know, the, the total focus of the discussion is that notion of denial at the center and how do we attack and, and overcome denial. That's, that's never felt to me like the best of the work, you know, the best of the work in the climate consideration. And it's been interesting during our podcast to hear people from other fields come forward and reflect on this in different ways related to their fields has always been about opportunity and benefit and community and how the sum of a community's health and well-being grows, I think at this point, almost <laughs> directly in direct correlation to the clean energy strides that are made in that community. And that has every sort of, it has everything to do with jobs and the economy and economic opportunity, not to mention all the clean air and public health benefits that come with it. And so I've always been really struck by how powerful, I guess, pun intended, you can be in doing work that um, actually erodes some of what we think of as these kind of classic power dynamics. And in fact, actually, you know, years ago, you know, you and I were involved in some work in the, in the inner mountain West under very, very difficult circumstances, working with Republicans who were coming forward on conservation values and having real impact, you know, at a time when, when it was, it was hard to find, you know, um, Democrats in any of these communities. And, um, so that always felt to me like very important and very authentic work, but but I have to say, in, you know, against the backdrop of our current political conversation, um, just this general malaise that we're feeling and even some of the critiques you could make about, you know, which which party really has done more or less to advance some of these issues. Um, I don't know. Maybe there's maybe there's a real case to be made for the power conversation. But, you know, you've worked on so many things involving narrative, on bridge building, on, um, you know, bringing unlikely allies together. How does that power critique land for you? Because, uh, you know, again, as somebody who's kind of impatient for progress and wishing we were making, you know, better strides, even though I think we're making many strides in many places all the time, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, I, I would say I'm, <laughs> I'm susceptible to the critique. You know, I'm susceptible to the critique that says you could have made so much more progress had you just looked at this really squarely from the standpoint of, you know, how do you get, assemble the power you need to make what incremental change is required to basically change perceptions as a result of, of changing the power dynamics? I mean, what, so I, let me put that question back to you. Where, where, where do you land with that? Where do you go with that? Okay. That was a very long answer, Kirk. I just, sorry, <laughs> sorry. I know it's a hard question though. Come on. It's a hard question. Hard. You're trying to talk yourself in and out of things at the same time. Here's what I, oh, well, he, he, we felt good because he said that the next, the younger generation gets it, which is, I think something that, I don't know, we, we they, he better be right. But, <laughs> but, and the other thing is that I, I do believe that these narratives, the understanding how to communicate even inside your own community is really important because then it, it inspires people. It makes them want to work harder. It helps them understand what you're trying to build. It does help you organize and gather and and 
work together. So I, I don't think that this notion of narrative or words or they, that you just chuck them out the window. Uh, so I, I'm I'm not willing to just kind of take his argument at pure face value, which is that you seize power that knows power doesn't seed mm. itself, that you just grab it and that being able to communicate well isn't part of it. Clearly, he's a communicator. It's what he does. So yeah. so don't you know, don't feel too bad, Kirk. I, I also uh, most certainly appreciate his critique of of philanthropy in that we are impatient. We require the ridiculous hoop jumping of grantees yeah. in order to do stuff. We have a very short fuse, blah, 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 all that stuff that, that foundations need to be more patient institution builders. That's I, I agree with that, too, and that we we sometimes get into our own way because we think we're so fabulous. So mm-hmm. uh, in that way, I, th- I, th- I think there's lots to be learned. From from David, I think he's you know he's really entertaining and interesting, and that's you know that's that's not nothing. Being able to tell a good story, yeah. engage your audience, and entertain them, inform them, give them the tools that they need to be able to persuade others. I think all that stuff matters. So you know, I, I've i felt okay. I'm I'm an optimist though, and and I think deep down, uh, you might be a midwestern uh pessimist <laughs> we'll see we'll see i will say his um his it was really fun he's very funny he's very engaging and i loved towards the end i was asking him so why aren't you doing your own podcast and he was like look i'm, I'm, I'm trying to work less that more these days and um <laughs> because podcasts aren't any work at all right yeah. you just turn on the machine and then you're done right. it doesn't require any effort is that what you're right. saying? So, so but maybe we could maybe we could get him to come back and talk with us some more because he had so many good nuggets. And I think uh, you know even even his pitches about what philanthropy could do to invest more in journalism, I thought were really interesting to hear. Um, it does make me want to talk with more folks who are involved in kind of this news desert equation and you know how journalism is playing out at the local level. I'm going to continue pursuing my conspiracy theory. Uh, trajectory of the podcast because I All think right. it's really great. It, 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 I don't mind people telling me they're wrong. My only thing, <laughs> you know, the comment about you know the the younger generation gets it inherently and viscerally. In an interesting kind of way, you could say, well, man, maybe that's a positive reflection of probably a couple decades now. You know, a couple generations worth of work, or you know, at least a generation's worth of work, and yeah. bringing people along. But my only proviso us. that I would throw out there is that I'm concerned, and this would be my last thing about the power conversation. Um, I wonder if we have a power problem or if we have a poverty problem, you know, because okay. my only concern about this notion that generationally there's a different sensibility coming behind us is when you look at the economic prospects confronting that generation, particularly now, you know, when the bottom has fallen out around this COVID yeah. stuff, I get concerned around the economic opportunity piece. And, and if and if that that generation really uh, is going to be able to be with us on some of these, you know, considerations given how scared they are, you know, financially and all that kind of stuff. But man, Dave, yeah, fair well, enough er- to be continued on that, on that point for sure. I'm glad you liked it, Eric. I'm really you glad great, you liked it. You were great, man. That was fabulous. Man. I'm not worthy. Well, hey, no, that's high praise because you've been, look, I, I, if I could get one of these out for every 10 of them that you do, I, I feel like I'm doing good work. So, okay, well, so, uh, so I'm happy to do it. Let's try and improve that ratio. But thank you. <laughs> thank you, Kirk. And thank you, everybody. And frankly, I would love to hear from folks out there about what you think. Are, are we telling, <laughs> do, do we need more power? Do we need our words and ideas dead? I don't know. Drop us a line. Let us know what you think. It's good to know what, what folks out there have on their minds. Please, please. Well, thanks a lot. We'll see you next time. And that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have on the show. And that includes yourself. We'd like to thank Maggie Brown, our intrepid production coordinator. John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Communications Network, the Lumina Foundation, and the Heinz Endowments. Thank you, thank you. And check out the Heinz Endowment, their terrific podcast, We Can Be. That's hosted by Grant Oliphant, and you can find it at heinz.org slash podcast. We would certainly like to thank today's guest, and of course, all of you, and thank you, Mr. Brown. (laughs) No, no, thank you, Mr. Brown. (laughs) Till next time. Let's hear it.